0: Hello and welcome to the How-To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. M. John Harrison, Mike Harrison, has been reinventing fiction for 50 years. As a member of the 1960s science fiction new wave, he worked with authors like Michael Moorcock and J.G. Ballard to help turn generic entertainment into serious and even avant-garde literature. His latest book is called Wish I Was Here, an anti-memoir. In it, Mike subverts and breaks apart the conventions of life writing with the same restless, unbridled spirit that powered his award winning novels Climbers, Light, Nova Swing, and most recently, The Sunken Land Begins to Rise Again. He sat down with me to explore the nature of the self, the desire for escape, and whether we're living in an age of fantasy. Mike, your new book, Wish I Was Here, is subtitled An Anti Memoir. What is an anti-memoir?
1: In this case, uh, that's kind of a reference to the anti-novel, which is a kind of French phenomenon in the uh, 50s and 60s of the last century, which is a a concept based on the idea that everything that the novel, the classic novel did, was suspect, and that basically you would try to write fiction that did none of the things that would be expected from a novel. Uh, That is to say, plot characterization, these kinds of basic ideas, basic assumptions we have about what a novel is. I thought I might do the same with memoir, partly because I have my doubts about memory.
0: This isn't the first of your books to have a protagonist called Michael. We've got Mike in Climbers, Mike Rose in Signs of Life, Michael Carney, and these are very different and distinct individuals. So what do these Michaels have in common with the protagonist of this anti-memoir?
1: Pentwich book, really, the protagonist of Climbers, although he's too passive really to be called a protagonist, is very much me. There are some biographical facts we do not share, but there are plenty that we do. Whereas, of course, the Michael Carney and I have absolutely nothing in common at all. (laughs) Especially, I'm not a serial killer, you know.
0: Or or a theoretical physicist, for that matter. (laughs) Or a theoretical physicist. Yeah. Mike and Climbers looks for and fails to find a herself. I posit to you the same is true of Mike and Wish I Was Here.
1: Well, that's true. Uh, I think the difference between the two is that by the time you're 70-odd, you've realised that you never will find yourself in that sense, that you will never find a single dependable narrative of of who you were or who you've been, partly because you can no longer remember anything clearly. However, I would add there that that's not the dynamic behind Wish I Was Here. Uh, The dynamic is that I've had a bad memory since I was about four years old. (laughs) And that caused me, beginning in my 20s, to question the entire concept of what people were talking about when they talked about memory.
0: You write about people who are lost in the fog of their lives, and they often are so possessed by the idea of looking for self, that they fail to notice what's happening around them in the world until it's too late. Sometimes not even then. Is that you? Is that all of us these days? I think that's all of us these days, uh, because
1: there are special circumstances. We, we are living in a fog now. We've got too much information and we can't depend on any of it. That is a, an essentially epistemological problem you know, which we're, we're now, we've entrapped ourselves in. Um, so I think my own personal fog has been a very useful metaphor for the more overall kind.
0: Well, central to these questions of memory and selfhood is your practice of keeping notes. When did you start the habit And how do notes infuse themselves into your longer form works? Because many writers, if not all, keep some form of notebook. But the depth of your practice is, I think, quite idiosyncratic.
1: Yeah, it's very, very central. I started keeping notes on a regular basis in the early 1970s in the form of journals, diaries, writers' notebooks, uh, notebooks for specific pieces of work, latterly I began to use my blog as a kind of public notebook, uh, a notebook in the open air sort of thing. I've always written a great deal that wasn't of use to the professional writer. Um, I think when you do that, there are going to be points at which every so often you ask yourself, is there something I could do with this stuff? And you can't think of anything, so you put it back in the drawer, as it were, or you close the file and, and, and go on to something else. But uh, I think as you get older, it becomes clearer and clearer that what you want to do with that material is, I mean, for want of a better word, make some sort of memoir, some sort of assessment of your own life, some sort of progress. But I also play games. I mean, in asking me the question about anti-memoir, in a sense, you're, you're opening the subject of, of writerly games. And for me, I've always written short stories on this basis. I've got these five completely separate notes from my notebook. They are totally unconnected, but I can see a scene there, or I think I can see a scene there. How can I put them together by adding the least number of new words? How can I make a text out of this? If I have to, mainly by subtraction rather than addition. What will I end up with? And I think if you then add that to the question, what if I wrote a horror story by taking all the horror out of a horror story? You put those two concepts together. I've been doing that since about 1975. Uh, It was very crude to start with. But now I've got quite efficient and sophisticated. So I thought, well, why not try a full-length book using the same method? I, had, I started with 220,000 words of notes, which
0: I cut down to 50. I mean, this is a short book. It's...
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I had to do it that way because I wanted to examine the whole 220,000 to work out what the themes would be, because you're going to have to organise a book one way or another. And I thought, well, frankly, I've got about eight obsessions. I want to see how they come through in the notes before I start using them as pigeonholes as a basis for for organisation for the book. So that's how that came about.
0: I think on a related note, anyone who's read across your work will notice the recurrence of passages, of images, even archetypal characters. Why do you do that? What effect are you aiming for overall?
1: I want the reader to be reminded every so often, or, or depending on the piece of work, either every so often or constantly that they seem to have read this somewhere before within my earth, as it were, and that this might be a reference which would be useful for them in, in reading the current text. Other times I do it simply to, to tease or I do it because I suddenly discovered that I haven't done, done it well the first time. Oh. So I'll have another go.
0: Um,
1: and I, in it, This is like show your workings, you know, Um, a a complete book normally has been, all of this has been expunged from it. None of this survives, you know, in it as it were a proper novel. But I think to myself every so often, let's let's show the reader some of the mechanics here.
0: Do you think in, um, I hesitate to use the word conventional, but let's use it anyway, more conventional genre or literary fiction, things can be too clean?
1: I think the more the more things go the way they're going in writing, in the whole you know discipline of writing, I think that becomes truer and truer. Uh, we are all so sophisticated now, and I think that the risk of sophistication is obvious, which is that stuff becomes glib, basically, and I would do anything to avoid that, including, as it were, write badly. You know, anything to give the work a a sense that it was made by a human being and indeed by a human being who wasn't overly professional
0: (laughs) material things are everywhere in your books you've got fictional worlds saturated with weird junk Ordinary lives filled with objects that are hoarded for nostalgia until they lose all of their original context. And Wish I Was Here continues that tradition. What is it about the man made material world that interests you? And can you tell us something about how and why you infuse mundane objects with a sense of the numinous and vice versa?
1: Yeah, those are two separate questions. You might have to remind me of the second one. Why do I do it? I do it because human beings collect objects and They collect objects, in a sense, unconsciously to define themselves. To to have objects is is to have part of your personality exteriorized, where you can look at it. Certainly, that's the whole point of uh, the lists of objects and the obsession with storage of objects in which I was here. The whole thing is a metaphor for how we handle memories. The objects are like exteriorized memories, uh, and, and they have been gathered across a life for precisely that purpose. It's only that later when you look back at them, they don't seem to resonate quite the way they did. <laughs> um, so that's the reason for that, especially in this book, the reason for the list of object, objects is, is that it's a central metaphor for one of the themes, uh, which is the, the storage of self in objects.
0: I'll ask you the second part again. Can you tell us something about how and why you infuse ordinary objects with something of the numinous or eminent? and vice versa?
1: That goes back to romanticism and being sem- 17 years old. I mean, I think that essentially, I have a kind of pantheist approach. Uh, I don't actually feel that objects have a soul, as it were, but I do believe that there are forms of fiction and forms of thinking, which we've had for a couple of hundred years that, that regard objects as containing a certain kind of imminence, that, that objects, even though they're not manufactured objects, uh, can somehow contain meaning and that that meaning resonates there. And the whole point of Gothic literature really is to take elements of a landscape, even if that's a kind of Interior landscape, uh, I mean, interior in the sense of, say, a domestic landscape, and infuse them with metaphors so that the text resonates. I learned to do that early because I was obsessed by the Gothic. I was happy with reading the Gothic as a teenager. And you learn to do that if you want to write the Gothic. Then I got to the point, as I said earlier, of taking the horror out of the horror story, taking the science fiction out of the science fiction story. At that point, I realized that I was going to need some sense of, I'm go- I was going to have to replace that with something. So I decided that I would infuse the, the, the landscape, the background, every aspect of the text with some aspect of the theme that the story was about to make the actions and the activities and the so-called plot the so-called story of the story, to to make that feed back into the background.
0: Let's uh, rub up against the book a bit and talk about your real life. You were born at the end of the war in Warwickshire to a family who both were and were not part of the lower middle class. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: It's hard to do more than I've already written in the book because of this memory thing. All the images that you find in the book from being four years old onwards are the ones that I remember in the classic sense of remembering. But I remember them as images so that I have a memory of dreaming that I was walking on the surface of a canal and that the surface of the water was exactly level with the towpath. So they formed a single continuous surface. I have no idea whether, I mean, that obviously never happened, but it's a thing I remember. It's a memory. Most of the rest of my memories are memories of avoidance of taking part in almost anything, but especially school. I was never happy with school, and I began to truant quite as, as soon as I could and walk about in landscapes on my own. It was very wordsworthy in a sense. Once my English teacher at 17 had introduced me to Wordsworth, I got it. Um, I thought, oh, I'm a romantic. <laughs> uh, whether I'm also an artist and and have ADHD, you know, we'll have to see. <laughs> but but what I certainly was by then was I was already a writer. You know, I was already more interested in writing a landscape down than going to school and learning. I don't know geography, mathematics.
0: It's not unusual for your novels to start in the post-industrial Midlands even places referred to in the fantastical Vericonium books and named after Midlands towns. What was it about that Midlands landscape of your childhood that's lasted till now? Why do you keep coming back to it?
1: Well, there are two things here. The, 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 the actual landscape of my childhood was, was in, as it were, the South Midlands, south of Birmingham in Warwickshire, whereas the, the landscapes that you're referring to, the Vericonium landscapes, all come from a later period where I was living in the Peak District near Huddersfield. And so they're much more northerly, much more pennine sorts of landscapes. And so there there are two different gradients of memory there, two different gradients of perception. I associate the more southerly landscapes with a kind of lushness, which would constantly collide with the industrial, whereas while that's true of the Pennine landscapes, it's true in a much more brutal fashion. The the moors are more brutal than than the fields of Warwickshire and the industrial remains are more brutal in the north. So Vericonium is, for me, the result of an extension of that
0: landscape, that particular landscape,
1: which was, as you'll know from the book, was an eye-opener to me.
0: Your father died when you were a teenager? How did that tragedy change things for you, both materially and psychologically? Can you relate that to the kind of reader and eventually to the writer you became?
1: Yes. I mean, I hesitate to put it into the, in, into the typical terms of the trauma plot. Um, but essentially, I think it probably destabilised the life that I had had to the point where at 13 years old, you're ready to change your life anyway. You're also angry, almost by definition. You're looking for a quarrel, Um, and then, then you find that a major figure in your life has vanished, in a sense, gone out of your life before you can have that quarrel, and I don't believe you can avoid the consequences of that. But I also believe that for a writer, it's better to leave them to cook than it is to go and get them fixed. I wouldn't like to lose the deeper psychological consequences of that because I think they fuel the fiction. You have to be slightly odd to write fantasy. You have to have a certain kind of imagination. You're not quite a surrealist, but but it's very close. The two things are very close. And for me, they're very close indeed. So that when I started to write fantasy and science fiction, I would sit down, knock my brain out, conscious brain out of gear, and write down whatever came in. in the perhaps vain hope that I would be getting in touch with my own deep psychology by doing
0: so. Uh, The overriding theme of your career is the pull and futility of escape and escapism. And does that obsession find its origins in that very difficult time in your life?
1: Yes, I think also because I was born to engineers in an engineering town, in an engineering family, everything was deeply practical and your life was supposed to map itself out into practicality, part of my rebellion was from the very start to become as impractical as I could, basically. So it had a a huge effect.
0: This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II, and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle, and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House, and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Let's jump forward a bit to the late 60s. The counterculture is in full swing and you are right at the heart of it. How did you come to meet Mike Moorcock and get involved in New Worlds?
1: I think i have been in London for two or three years and I had uh, written and published a few short stories. And I had been constantly submitting to New Worlds, the magazine that he he then ran, for four or five years um, because of my obsession with finding new forms of fiction, new new ways to write fiction. So that originally that had been part of the same impulse that would would have led me to read, say, Samuel Beckett, was to read J.D. Ballard because he was available from... 63, 64 onwards, doing extremely experimental work. And Mike had been quite encouraging, but he still hadn't accepted any fiction from me, as it were, uh, to publish. Then one day, I was living in a bedsitter in Toffnall Park. He actually turned up in the bedsitter and said, how would you like to write some reviews for us and and become our reviews editor? And I was quite puzzled (laughs) by that (laughs) and obviously delighted. You know, um, that's where my career as as a very angry reviewer began.
0: Were you self-conscious at the time about fulfilling this great romantic trope of being a young bohemian, inventing a revolutionary new kind of art?
1: Well, I think we all were. That's what everybody wanted to do back then. How you decided to do it or how you decided to try to do it was down to who you were, I think. I didn't find myself in massive sympathy with everything that was going on then. And here I'm not talking about new worlds or the new wave. I'm talking about what was generally happening, you know, in the over overculture. But at the same time, it seemed as if we were at a point where if you decided to do something that, that was difficult, now was the time. If if you wanted to break something and, and try and find a new form inside it, now was the time. You know, it was happening everywhere. Everywhere you looked in culture, things were being broken and moved on. That's how we would have thought of it then.
0: What kind of state was SFF in at the time, and how did that compare to the literary fiction of the period?
1: Well, it certainly wasn't literary in the sense that we understand the word now. It was mainly a, a development from and, and the remains of the folk the fiction period of the 1920s and on. It was, as it is today, I think, still mainly a a field of entertainment and escape. There's no avoiding the understanding that that fantasy and science fiction are, are generally a broadly escapist medium. That's what they're for, mostly. I think what happened in the 60s was that a lot of us arrived in the medium and thought, well, actually, A... Other things have been done with this medium than escapism. You can look back into the past and see that and be, why shouldn't we do that? Why shouldn't we make it, as it were, as we would have thought of it then, relevant politically, culturally relevant? And while we're doing that, perhaps we could catch up, catch it up in terms of technique with modernism. At the same time, post modernism was beginning to rear its head and for some of us, that was, that was even more fascinating. I was as influenced by Thomas Pynchon back then, uh, at that point, as I was by New Worlds or, or, or by the new wave of, of British science fiction. I was fascinated by the whole idea of not just postmodernism, but poststructuralism, which seemed to me to have real, really interesting things to say about what I did and how I did it.
0: Well, you've managed subsequently to achieve much of what you wanted back in the 60s, and pissed off just about everyone in the process. (laughs) To this day, when you write about world-building and its proper place in subordination to storytelling, you still manage to drive quarters of the internet into an absolute apoplectic rage. What do you think they're getting so annoyed about? And what does this say to this day about the average SFF reader?
1: I think people don't like their escapism to to be trolled. I mean, I think that's quite obvious. I think some of them probably missed the point that it was done for precisely that purpose. But I also think, and, and wish I was here, is to a degree about that discovery in myself, that if you consume a lot of escapist fiction and a lot of escapist media, that will, in a sense, stop up and absorb your desire for change in the real world. And that essentially, if you engage with the real world directly and feel your entrapment in the culture of your day, you will be more likely to actually work for change than if you can escape into Netflix.
0: It's a very Brechtian philosophy that you brought to SFF.
1: Yes, it is. And I don't think I've changed my mind about that, weirdly, in 50 years, 60 years.
0: How does your experience of London relate to your relationship with escapism? You escaped, in essence, to London to join New Worlds and to write stories and live in a bedsit. And then you left for the Peak District and you've come and gone back and forth since then. And your characters also seek out cities real and imagined for promises that the cities can never fulfill. Is that unquenchable restlessness a part of your character?
1: Yes, but uh, there are, as I get older, it's clear that there are reasons for that and that it's, it's not simply a personality thing, as it were. I like the anonymity of big cities. I like, I, and I liked very much when I was younger, the idea of going somewhere where nobody knew who I was. Nobody had any expectations of me, because they didn't know who I was. I like the idea that I didn't know my neighbour in London. I liked that whole sense of a, a fairly radical extension of the idea of being alienated. It suited the way I felt. And it does suit something deep in my personality. On the other hand, if you do that for long enough, you become slightly desperate in ways that you don't really understand, and which I didn't really engage with until towards the end of my New Worlds sort of period and experience by writing fiction that was about people who had begun to dimly realize, or failed to realize, that they were massively alienated uh, from their own lives. So, that, I mean, this is what drew, drew me to Olivia Lang and, and The Lonely City, was that in reading her her book, I suddenly realized that alienation is just another word for loneliness, you know? And that's, that's left me with an entire Decades worth of thought to have uh, about that cyclic process, which you've identified of of spending ten years in a city and then deciding to spend ten years in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I don't know. I need it. I need. I need to go to cities. I need to escape from cities.
0: You say in "Wish I Was Here" that we're living in an age of fantasy. It's not a compliment. <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> Well,
1: it isn't a compliment. I mean, frankly, when you're young, people say to you, look, you'll get nowhere by living in dreams. And the fact is, you won't. They were right. They're right. Um, when I'm on Twitter, I find it really hard to deal with the fact that every issue that comes up is, within a half a day, turned into a fantasy version of itself that every solution that is propounded is a fantastic solution, that every argument is based on some form of popular literature or fiction, um, or refers to an advertising campaign, or a brand, or or, or the view of the world that a corporate propounds, or that a politician propounds. All these are fantasies. We live in a world of fantasy. I really don't think we should be doing that. I feel a certain panic when I confront that idea.
0: There's another sense in which we're living in an age of fantasy, which is to say that we're living in the age of the big escapist fantasy entertainment franchise. The very thing you were deconstructing back in the 70s and 80s has only got worse since then. So I have to ask, has anyone dared to approach you about filming Vericonium or some of your other stories? Uh,
1: I did have have some approaches early on. But I found very quickly that, that the people who wanted to film, say, The Committed Men, my first book, which is a post-apocalyptic novel, would, were quite willing to and intended to reverse the meaning of the text. It's not a very happy book. And, and it says, well, what if the disaster was really a disaster? Why if there was no happy ending it? Why things just were seen to be getting worse and worse forever. nobody writes that so I'll do it. The first thing that the treatments that were produced um, for a, for a possible film of that reverse that they put a happy ending right and I just wrote a letter saying no thanks. I'm extremely unhappy with any idea of fiction that 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 doesn't have at it, its heart the idea that fiction is about meaning. It's about meaning. It's rhetoric. It's a form of rhetoric. It, when you write a book, you are attempting to convince a reader of something. Um, I have this argument with my partner all the time, because she's a filmmaker, and it's kind of like, well, I will say, but the film reversed the meaning of the book. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't write a book unless it was about the meaning that it had. And and I find the idea of, of transition to film being a kind of move towards a smeared out form of comfort for the user. Uh, that's not what I do.
0: I feel like Tarkovsky could have made a good film of at least one of your books, but alas, not to be. Um, your ideas have, however, had a lot of influence in the literary arena. And at the turn of the millennium, you found yourself in a second major literary scene, this time as the older statesman rather than the young Turk, and that movement was the new weird. What is the weird, and how does it differ from the other big special effects of SFF, like the sublime or the uncanny or the so-called sense of wonder?
1: I, th- I think you touched on that earlier on when 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 you asked me about um, infusing objects with, with a kind of imminence. Um, for me... The Weird has an absolutely massively complicated origin because it starts with Romanticism and the Gothic, which was then infused with symbolism and Flaneurism, the kind of romantic metaphysics of Yeats, Arthur Macon, Charles Williams, with inputs from the from the popular horror genres, leading to writers like Robert Aikman, who was, who was very capable of writing a story about apparently very ordinary events, but suggesting that an astonishing amount of menace behind them. All of that collides with hauntology and with psychogeography and and indeed landscape writing, uh, which really has its roots way back in in romantic writing and Gothic writing, uh, especially now. For me, all of those things can be used to make the very ordinary look very strange indeed, and for me that's what the weird does. The weird is a way of talking about the things that are real without, without making a, a clear analogy. So the whole text is the metaphor and a very complicated metaphor um, for what the story is actually talking about. Uh, so that is a very personal definition, but it comes from a lifetime of absorbing the various inputs to the concept of, of the weird.
0: Do you recognize yourself as a writer's writer?
1: I suppose to a degree I have to, in the sense that, you know, everybody else does. <laughs> I think that's partly because most of my texts are meta-texts, so that they're, they, they're writing about writing uh, a lot of the time. But I think that the, um, I think it's a wrong assumption in terms of, of books, books are about people, they're about humanity. They, they have or require human themes, themes of humanity. I think that I deal sufficiently with humanity to not be called a writer's writer, that I'm still writing for, for as it were, a reader. These days, also, who is a reader? You know, I have parts of my audience are very interested in the way I do it. and don't think that I'm a writer's writer at all. I think the writer's writer description came out of science fiction and fantasy um, and that it wouldn't be meaningful to a reader of the London Review of Books.
0: On the very subject of the London Review of Books, in an article I read about your work, it was noted that there were two types of Harrison novel, one with a China Miéville quote on the jacket and one with a Robert McFarlane quote on the jacket. Do you recognise the distinction between the author of the big gonzo fantasy stuff and the author of the literary work with a slice of something weird in it? Or is it more complicated than having two different writing modes?
1: I think it's, it's more complicated. And also, I would very much like now to collapse those oppositions into one another. For me, it's, at this point, it's wholly a question of packaging. As far as I'm concerned, Light is quite a difficult book about people. It's not a space opera. On the other hand, I'm perfectly aware that it is a space opera. What I'm trying to say, and what I would like my packaging to say, is essentially, yes, this is a space opera, but my God, it's about lots of other stuff as well.
0: One thing that all of your fiction is about is the body. This is true of Wish I Was Here as well. In everything you've written, there's a sense that physical activities that induce flow states like climbing, like sex, like what you call in the space operas, surfing, is fundamental to you. And conversely, you have an obsession with physical illnesses and with psychological illnesses that have severe physical effects, like anorexia. And that strikes me as being very unusual within the genre, where rationalism and quote-unquote ideas are still the order of the day, but also unusual even within conventional literary fiction. So will you speak a little bit about that?
1: I I think that in the end, all we have is experience that that and a kind of phenomenological approach um, all we have of life is our experience of life and that and that because of that fiction should engage with that and it should engage with what I see as a kind of contemporary problem which is the separation of discourse on one side and actual experience of the world on the other in a sense. I have a reluctance to even be a writer because that is to produce a discourse about life rather than to live a life. In a sense, I think I might have been a better existentialist (laughs) (laughs) Um, than a fantasy writer. Every medium we have nowadays encourages us to turn our own experience into a rhetoric of fun and adventure. I would frankly rather fall down on the pavement and and break my wrist than do that.
0: The literary establishment in this country has, I think, accepted you as one of their own in recent years. You know, you've judged the Booker Prize, you've had conferences about your work, and you won the Goldsmiths Prize for a book about fish people taking over society, probably the only literary novel about fish people ever to win a major prize. Do you feel fulfilled by that? Or is there part of you that still wants to rage against the establishment?
1: No, um, that is such a complex situation and it's such a complex question because on one hand, I am happy. I think it's fantastic to have these things happen to you, especially when you're 77 years old. And I see it as an opportunity to, to do what I was talking about a moment ago, which is to, to somehow represent myself as somebody who can write a book like that, but have it received as a serious book. I'm delighted by that. I enjoyed judging the book. I enjoyed meeting people and working with people who were so much brainier than me, so much better educated as well. It was great. And I deeply enjoyed winning the Goldsmiths, although I was astonished. I had hoped I might get a shortlist, to actually win it, left me without a speech. I because <laughs> I didn't expect to be there. Um, and in a way, I was glad that it happened during lockdown, because it could all happen by Zoom, uh, and I wouldn't have the embarrassment of standing up on a, on a stage with no speech. But, yeah, on one hand, delighted. On the other hand, yeah, still angry. I think there's still too much wrong with publishing that could be so easily cured and I see a great deal of possibility in small publishing small publishers are discovering many of the of the new interesting books uh, these days and I think uh, it would be great to see a a lot more of that politically still very angry how can you not be
0: that was going to be my final question actually (laughs) you've answered it (laughs) so i'll I'll ask you another one. Does literary fiction have a future? Actually, let me rephrase that. I'm talking about literature in general in our age of screen entertainment. I don't just mean literary fiction in the generic sense.
1: you know i don't I don't know. You could be a Cassandra all you like about these kinds of positions. and while it seems as if as if fiction as as I know it could disappear, I think. Written fiction on pages could easily vanish. On the other hand, I mean, just as it could vanish into the jaws of AI and no longer be written by human beings, both of those are perfectly sound predictions. You know, you'd have a reasonable percentage of getting your money back on that bet. On the other hand, I can see a situation in which fiction, as I know, it simply goes underground and, and keeps going with a smaller audience, because people want to write about their lives. They want to write about human beings. They want to record it in some way. Maybe it won't even be written down on paper, but whatever. No, I don't think it will go away in the end. I think it might get small, and it might you might have to be a lot more determined than we are these days to pursue it. I'm not even sure that would be a bad thing.
0: I'm going to take that as a little inflection of hope uh, and in the interview Mike Harrison, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast
1: Thank you, thanks very much
0: This episode starred M. John Harrison whose new anti-memoir, Wish I Was Here has just come out It was produced and presented by me and I make the show with Esme Bright We have help from Nicole Wong and our editor is John Daugherty I've interviewed many of science fiction's leading lights previously on the show, most recently the diplomat Ray Naylor on his dazzlingly philosophical debut novel The Mountain Under the Sea. You can find that episode and more like it at howtoacademy.com. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.